And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. By any standard, Chris Murphy's a very successful politician, a state legislator, state senator, congressman, and United States senator, all before he turned 40. But it was in one horrific moment in 2012 when 20 children and six teachers and staff were killed in a gun massacre at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Murphy's Congressional District that he found his defining mission. I spoke with him last week to talk about the improbable passage of a bipartisan gun safety law he helped forge last month after another school massacre in Uvalde, Texas. Neither of us knew as we talked that a few days later another gunman would open fire at the July 4th parade in Highland Park, Illinois, near my hometown of Chicago. I had friends who were there and shared their anguish, just another horrific chapter in the ongoing saga of gun violence in America. Here's my conversation with Senator Murphy. Senator Chris Murphy, it is is really great to see you. I uh, welcome, first of all. Thank you for having me. I want to say that I want to thank you for proving me wrong. Uh, the night of the Uvalde uh, nightmare, the massacre uh, there, uh, I was asked on CNN uh, whether I thought the, the 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 Congress would do anything, and I said. I, I would like to say yes, but I, I didn't believe that it would because history was not very kind in this regard. Uh, and um, so you, you proved me wrong, and I'm so grateful that you proved me wrong. It's important for the country and um, in so many different ways. And I want to talk about that. But I just before we get there, before we get there, I just want to talk a little bit about your own history because in a sense, how you got to that moment is is really important. But you had a very kind of conventional upbringing, comfortable, suburban sort of thing. And you were probably, if they voted in your school, you were probably voted the most likely to become a politician, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, um, you know, I was class president. I was on every, you know, uh, student's organization governing board you could be on. There was a profile written of me right after I got elected to the Senate that uh, claimed I carried a briefcase uh, with me in high school. And it was just a high school friend playing a trick, um, but it was plausible, right? I would have been the kind of kid who would have carried a briefcase. And so the reporter believed it and put it in the story. Um, I was an, you know, an organizer from the womb, right? I just I was the kid who organized the touch football games. I was the kid who organized the student protests against the renovations at our high school that were going too slowly. So I um, you know, became addicted to this stuff at an early age. I don't have a family background in politics, but um, in fact, your got, your parents were Republicans, right? Yeah, both of our parents were Republicans. My father actually was appointed to um, a local board by the Republican Party, and so my only sort of memories of political activism when I was a kid is actually once a year. The price for being appointed to this board was that he had to go hand out leaflets for the Republican council candidates. Um, once every two years. Uh, and so I remember having to do that with him, but my family wasn't politically active, not terribly politically involved. Um, and so to the extent that I had, you know, any kind of teenage rebellion, it was in, you know, becoming a Democrat and at 18 registering as a Democrat. But uh, yeah, this stuff was um, just in my DNA, um, not necessarily in my blood, but um, I was an organizer early and I knew pretty early on that 
public service and politics was something I was good at and something that I, I wanted to do. You know, you say these things and, and people, I think, take them as a pejorative, not from me, uh, but you're sort of, uh, you've made this your career. You're a career politician. You got elected to the legislature when you were 25 years old in Connecticut. You're still in law school. What was that like, by the way, studying the law and making laws at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't a very good law student. Um, I, I'm going to be hopeful that my transcript never becomes uh, public because I was, you know, frankly, much more interested in being a, a legislator than I, I was in a law student. The only, you know, really important thing that happened to me in law school was that I met my wife there. But who was uh, yeah. lobbying you? Right? She was lobbying you on some <laughs> issue. Yeah, she was. Um, she was pushing to get a bill passed through the state legislature that would provide loan forgiveness for um, law students who went into public interest law who yeah. went to be a representative. Great idea, and, actually. Yeah, it was a great yeah. idea. And so she ran into me at a at a bar watching the 1999 UConn-Duke National Championship game. And 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 as I was interested in watching the game, she was distracting me, trying to <laughs> lobby, lobby me on this legislation. Well, she obviously got your attention. Yeah. So four years in the House, in the state, in the state House, and then you ran for the state Senate, and you spent uh, four years in the state Senate. Uh, and I don't want to I mean, you did substantive things there. You were chairman of the Public Health Committee. You did important things there. I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to advance the story here. <laughs> and then you ran for Congress in the big Democratic sweep of 2006. You were able to unseat a Republican. So you had this steady march. And then in 2012, uh, you ran for the Senate. So was this your, what, did you have a plan? Did you say, well, I'm going to put my one foot here and my next foot there and my next foot there? And it, it seems almost methodical. I mean, you're 39 by the time you got elected to the Senate. Right. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I think all of us that reach this level, um, you know, are a creature of being in the right place at the right time. And, and I simply was, right? I ran for Congress in a year where Democrats were winning across the country. I ran against a incumbent who I think had gotten a bit complacent and hadn't run a close race in a while. Um, six years later, um, uh, a Senate seat opened up at a time when uh, the other members of the House delegation in Connecticut had kind of put in so much time in the House that they didn't sort of want to make that jump to start as a freshman again in the United States Senate. So listen, I've worked hard. Um, I think I've earned it, but I've also just been, um, I, I think, a, a creature of uh, of good of good fortune. So this was never, you know, part of a, a plan, um, but I've never been afraid to lose. I, I guess I've, I've always, always been you know, willing to take these risks because I see the opportunity to make a bigger difference. Easy, in a, in easy a better- for you to say, let's find yeah. out, let's find out when you lose sometime. <laughs> right. But, right. But in, uh, I think this is where the story gets really, really uh, interesting because in the weeks between when you were elected to the house and when you were elected to the Senate, uh, something happened in your congressional district that really changed your life. And as it turns out, has has sort of maybe changed the country uh, in a bit because of what it did to you. Uh, but talk about the, the, uh, the, the massacre at Newtown and how you experienced it. Yeah. So, you know, it happened, as you mentioned, in between my election to the Senate and my swearing. And I was the congressman from Newtown, but I was um, you know, standing on a train platform in Bridgeport, Connecticut. My wife and I were going to bring our kids at that time, ages four and one, down to New York for the afternoon to see the sort of Christmas displays in the city. And I got word that there had been a workplace shooting um, pretty quickly. It turned out to be something much more than that. And I got in the car and headed up to Sandy Hook, spent the rest of the, the day and week there, um, you know, saw things and heard things 
that day, um, uh, being in the room or right outside the room as the parents were told what had happened that I often wish I never saw or heard. Um, and my life changed. That whole scene, you yeah. know, uh, I was watching the coverage of Uvalde and the, the, the parents being taken to a reunification center or whatever they called it. Yeah. And the, the whole concept of waiting to see if their child walked through that door and being the parents whose children didn't walk through right. that door. Uh, and, you know, as a parent, as a grandparent now, I'm like, and you were a young parent at the time. Right. Yeah. I mean, hard to explain what that's like, right? So you had all of the parents from San Diego Elementary School told to come to the firehouse. Um, and all of a sudden you look around and there are no more kids arriving. You've been told something awful has happened to the school and there's only 19 other sets of parents. Um, uh, that's about when I got there. Um, and so the governor made the decision to um, you know, not wait until the identifications had been made and tell those parents what had likely happened to their kids. Um, and, um, you know, I was there with the governor when he made that decision. I was there outside the room when the conversation happened. It's just, um, I mean, again, a lot of days I wish I hadn't seen it and heard it. It was truly awful. And, you know, obviously it happened again in Uvalde. It's something no parent should ever have to contemplate going through. You met a guy uh, there named Neil Heslin. Tell me about him. So Neil is a guy who's had a hard luck life, uh, had a hard time. He's, he's separated from his wife, but they have a child together, Jesse. Um, Jesse was um, killed inside the school that day. Neil had him the night before at his house. He dropped him off that morning at school and never saw him again. And um, all those parents um, left shortly thereafter. They were told to go home and then they were brought to identify their kids' bodies later that night by state troopers. But um, one parent didn't leave the firehouse, the, the emergency response center. And it was this guy, Neil Heslin. At about 10 o'clock that night, I was getting ready to leave. And I noticed this single solitary guy sitting in the middle of the firehouse refusing to leave. I went up and introduced myself to him. He told me who he was and that he had decided to stay just in case Jesse came back, oh. just in case Jesse had run into oh. the wood, into the woods um, and really wasn't in that building. Neil didn't want to leave that firehouse. And he stayed until 1 a.m. Um, until he finally was convinced to leave. And it, I, I sometimes tell that story just as a, as a means to try to translate, um, you know, just um, how cataclysmic this is for a community and for families. Neil, um, you know, he's a, he's a conservative. Um, he's a guy that, you know, probably didn't vote in many elections. Uh, if he did, he probably voted for a lot of Republicans. He now is you know, he's heroic in his efforts to try to get these laws changed um, because he's not a natural political activist, but he has sort of been forced to become part of this cause and this movement. That so often happens. I mean, you you get drafted into things you never would want to yep. be a part of by your life's experience. Yeah, I read that story and I, and I cried when I read that story because you can't help but think what that would be like to be him in that moment. Yeah, I wrote about that story. I wrote a book on gun violence yes, and sort yes. of the epidemic in America. And I wrote that story for the book and I cried while writing it. And so yeah. I decided not to include it because I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, this, this, this whole story is too heartbreaking. And um, for me, that one was sort of too much to make readers go through. Yeah. Well, I would have included it because it, it so drives this point home. So tell me, so you, to this point, the reason I wanted to do the, the previous history is you were you were a very good legislator. You were a good politician, kind of a young guy in a hurry. 
How did this change you? I think I was a good legislator, but I admit that I, you know, didn't necessarily have the emotional connection to the issues I was working on in a way that I think makes um, legislators and members of Congress truly effective. Um, and you know, maybe that's because I tend to be a little bit more of a sort of, you know, I have a brain that maybe processes things a little bit more intellectually than emotionally. Part of it is that I didn't lead a hard luck life, right? So I didn't struggle growing up. Um, but I admit that there was a little something missing from my sort of political DNA, my public service DNA, um, when I got to the Senate. Um, and um, this just became um, a personal crusade for me because, you know, I had kids that were about the same age because these families um, suddenly became my friends, um, both um, professional and personal friends. Um, and because I suddenly realized that because this happened in my district, because this happened in my state, right as I was being elected to the Senate, it had just become my mission to do something and get something done. And I realized that if I didn't, um, you know, I would probably be a failure as a political figure, but I would also be a failure in these parents' minds. And to me, that was maybe the most important thing that mattered. So, um, you know, what I, what I acquired that day was um, a sort of driving, motivating force for every single day of my public service. And I admit that up until that day, well, I worked on a lot of important stuff and passed important bills. I probably didn't have that. Um, I have it now. You also faced a lot of failure along the way over these these past 10 years. Talk about that, because like I said at the beginning, like color me a cynic based on all the experience that we've had. But, you know, we have overwhelming public opinion for things like background checks. Uh, and yet, and yet uh, we can never get it done. Uh, you know, uh, or, uh, you know, universal background checks. And there's so many others kind of common sense sort of steps. Um, how do you keep going? Uh, I mean, how, how much do you have to bang your head against the wall before you say, you know, I'm tired of having a headache? Yeah. Well, I, I guess it's simple. I mean, if any of those families gave up, maybe I'd consider giving up, but none of them gave up. All of those families from Sandy Hook and the kids from Parkland and the moms and dads who lost sons and daughters in Hartford and New Haven, they didn't give up. So I certainly couldn't give up. I mean, what I became over the last 10 years is both a cynic and a sucker. So <laughs> listen, I, I was like you. I mean, I started these negotiations with Cornyn and Tillis and Cinema and said, listen, you know, maybe we have a 10% shot at success. But I, I'm also a sucker for negotiation. Anybody that wants to talk about a potential path forward on legislation, I will sit down with them, notwithstanding the fact that I know I am likely going to be Charlie Brown with the football pulled out from under me at some point in the talks. Um, and so I guess my cynicism still hasn't caused me to not have this sort of little glimmer of hope that maybe things are different. I also thought this whole 10 years that we were building a movement that eventually would one day be powerful enough to beat the NRA. And I actually believe that. I, I think it's borne out to be true, but as much as I failed as, as many times as I tried to get a bill passed and couldn't. I also thought, well, maybe this is like all the other great social change movements yeah. that, had to, that had to fail a lot before they succeeded. I know that you've written and you've talked about this, that you actually studied the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, other social movements to try and discern from them the path forward. And the path forward is one, a lot of misses um, before you hit. Uh, right. You're, you're talking about a long time between um, Emmett Till's open casket until the passage of the 63 and 64 acts, um, but also um, a willingness to 
um, accept something that's good but not perfect as a recognition that success begets success. And, And that obviously was, I think, a hard pill for the movement to swallow at the beginning of these talks when it was clear that we weren't going to do universal background checks or an assault weapon ban. But if you look back on these other social change movements, this is how it happens. You first get um, the right of gay couples to adopt. And it doesn't mean that activists go away. No, the opposite happens. They actually realize that speaking truth to power results in change. And so they do more of it. And I'm not saying we're going to pass another law next year, but I do think that this is just going to fuel the movement. I do think this is going to bring more potential for compromise and, and victory in the future. Yeah, well, this is really an interesting point because I, I mean, I monitor the social media around this and, you know, you see, and I'm sure you've been uh, treated to a bunch of this, uh, you know, the the kind of social media voice that says, you know, this is nothing, you know, this is, we, we shouldn't do it. It's just going to give the Republicans cover. And it reminded me, uh, Senator, of the uh, I was around for the Affordable Care Act, and you remember the big debate over whether there'd be a public option, and right. and we couldn't get it. And there were some of the same voices who were saying, you know what, uh, we shouldn't do anything. This isn't adequate. And I still bump into people to this day whose lives have been saved, whose children's life has, or child's life has been saved uh, because of things that were in that law. And I don't know how I would face those people if I said, you know, we would have tried to help, but we couldn't get everything. So we did nothing. Well, and that's the same case with this law. This is ultimately going to save thousands of lives, um, you know, boyfriends who won't be able to get guns after they beat up their girlfriends, billions of dollars investment in mental health, um, you know, making it a little bit harder for these 18 year olds to buy assault weapons when they're in crisis. Um, And what's also interesting about this bill, David, is that, you know, it wasn't a trade. I mean, back in the old days, if you wanted to move forward on guns, you also had to move backwards. So Mansion Toomey expanded background checks, but it also had a bunch of sweeteners, giveaways to the gun industry. There are none of those in this bill. There's only good stuff. It's it's changes in gun laws to make it harder for bad people to get guns and lots of spending on mental health and school safety. There's no trade with the gun industry anywhere inside this bill. So I think for that reason, it was a no-brainer. If you can save lives, if you can sort of show the path of success in the future, um, why not take that opportunity? And I will say every single one of the um, you know, anti-gun violence groups in the end um, not just supported this, but celebrated this bill. So it didn't take a lot of convincing for the movement to decide that this was the right thing to do. Yeah, I was at a uh, I was at an event for Gabby Giffords in Chicago as this was unfolding in that mm. week. And uh, there was a sense of uh, of real exaltation that Finally, there was some forward progress here. Incidentally, you know, in Chicago, we've had 61 what would be termed mass shootings in the last year, in the last year. And I know you've written and spoken about this. Our consciences are pricked by things like Uvalde and Newtown. There are kids a mile or two from where I'm sitting right now who literally are growing up in war zones. Yeah. And they offered, um, as was absolutely necessary, counseling to these poor kids in Uvalde who survived. And I'm sure it was true at Newtown as well. But these these kids here, you know, they witness death and, and gun violence on a daily basis. I don't know that we focus enough 
on these daily occurrences, not just in Chicago, but in communities across the country. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is my neighborhood. So I, I'm talking to you from my house in Hartford. I live in the south end of Hartford. I'm on the route to Harvard Hospital. There are sirens whizzing by my house every night, many of which have gun violence victims in um, the back of that ambulance. Uh, and um, I just don't think we understand the scope of this epidemic because it's not a coincidence that the quote unquote underperforming schools in this nation are by and large in the most violent neighborhoods. When kids experience a level of trauma that these kids do in neighborhoods where they fear for their life literally every day, where every kid knows a close friend or a cousin or yeah. a brother, sister who's died of this epidemic, their brains are literally changed. I mean, there's science that shows you the brain chemistry is altered by this constant experience of trauma. And what happens is they lose the ability to focus. They lose the ability of resilience. They lose the ability to create close relationships. They don't succeed at school. And so it's not a shocker that if you live in a really violent neighborhood, you have really poor results in schools because these kids' brains are literally being broken by this. So you look at the epidemic and you say, oh, well, 100 people die every day of gun violence. That's how we categorize the scope of the epidemic. No, there are millions of kids whose lives are shattered, even if they never get shot, even if their brother never gets shot, just because of the brain chemistry changes that happen when you experience gun violence. And, and, and that's, I think, how we have to talk about this as a, as a public health nightmare, not just a um, uh, you know, a, a, a epidemic that is exclusive to the individuals who are shot in the chest or the neck. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You've written about uh, and spoken about often about the mental health aspects versus guns. And we should all celebrate the the mental health funding that you were able to obtain in this bill that the president has now signed. But talk a little bit about, I mean, it, it's bewildering to me. We have, uh, we don't have, we have exponentially more gun violence in this country. We don't have exponentially more mental illness. It, it, it is a canard to say, that this is uh, purely a, 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 an issue of, of mental illness. It's a fig leaf for the gun industry and the gun lobby. What do we have, 46% of the privately owned weapons or something thereabouts in the whole world? More guns than human beings in the United States right now. Um, and in a neighborhood like this one in Hartford, Connecticut, they exist everywhere, right? So an ordinary argument uh, many times here turns into a murder in the way that it does in other places around the world, right? On the same day that Sandy Hook happens, there's a, there's a mass school tragedy at an elementary school in China. Same number of kids and teachers are attacked, but every single one of them survives in China because the attacker had a knife, not a military-style assault weapon. It is just true that America's gun violence epidemic is a result of the um, just unlimited flow and ubiquity of guns in this nation, not because of mental illness. And I mean, David, I have um, reservations about this bill attaching investment in mental health to changes in our gun laws, because I don't want to fuel the stereotype that this is primarily a mental health issue, nor do I want to fuel the stereotype that people with mental illness are prone to violence. They actually aren't. <laughs> they are much more likely to be right. victims of violence. Right, right. 
But that was the price that we needed to pay. That's what Republicans wanted um, in order to um, include these, these these five changes in gun laws. And to me, it was an easy price. Yeah, to say well, there's yes certainly to. that's certainly a win-win because right. we do need the mental health funding. But um, you know, we just a few weeks ago, I had on this uh, right after Uvalde, I had uh, my old friend Arnie Duncan, yeah. who you know well, who's a crusader on this issue, really heroic uh, here in the city of Chicago. And he brought with him a young man who had been uh, an active uh, gang leader and who had been shot five different times and had killed someone and served in prison and turned his life around and now is a violence interrupter. And I asked him, you know, well, where do you get these guns? He said, they're everywhere. We can get anything we want. And this was the frightening thing. He said, the difference between when I was active and the young men now is they feel like if you don't have a gun that shoots 50 rounds, then you're not, you're inadequate. Right. So it's become the norm now to have assault weapons on our streets. How do we, well, how do we get that toothpaste back in the tube? Yeah. And, and right. Have these assault weapons or these high capacity magazines, right. uh, you know, attached to pistols. Um, well, there's 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 two pieces here, both addressed in our bill. One, as you know, right, the crime guns used in Chicago are not coming from Chicago gun right. stores or Illinois gun stores. Yes, Same they thing come from straw buyers, and I know you tried to address yeah. that. Indiana, he said, we get them from Indiana, we get them from Mississippi, we get them from Alabama. That's why this is a national issue. That's right. Guns don't respect borders. And what you do is you send in, you know, somebody that's prohibited from buying a weapon in Indiana sends into that store somebody who's not prohibited from buying weapons. Um, they buy a whole mess load of them, give them to the person who's prohibited, and they go end up selling them in Chicago. So we never had a federal law against gun trafficking or straw purchasing. Why didn't we? Because the gun industry didn't want it. The gun industry fought this for decades because they make a ton of money off of straw purchases and illegal gun trafficking. Those gun stores down in South Carolina, they love the fact, not all of them, but many of them, um, you know, subconsciously um, are addicted to the revenue flow um, that comes from the trafficking of weapons from South Carolina or Georgia up to Connecticut and New York. So this bill includes the first ever criminal statute on gun trafficking and uh, straw purchasing. Some of the gun advocacy groups think that this in the end will be the most important change in this law because it gives the federal government the tools to unwind some of these gun trafficking rings. And then quickly, David, the second thing is, you know, Arnie runs programming, as you mentioned, that does violence interruption, right? Yes. That goes, goes to the emergency room, after a murder has been committed and does the hard work to stop the sort of reprisal. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The retributive mm-hmm. violence. So this bill also includes a quarter of a billion dollars to fund those programs all yeah. across the country. So we're doing good work in this bill to try to get at that urban gun violence that often gets forgotten when we're only viewing this epidemic through the prism of mass shootings. Let me ask you, you made this, I mean, and I watched it with admiration, but you made this stirring speech on the floor that I guess was the night of Uvalde. Yeah. Uh, in which you ask, what what are we doing here? Why do we come here if we don't respond to something like this? And I mean, it really was one of the great speeches that I've seen on the floor. How, how did that come about? And more importantly, how did your colleagues react to it? So I was um, sitting in the dais. I was presiding over the Senate when um, you know my phone started to blow up with news of what had happened in Uvalde. And by the time my hour in the chair was over, it was clear this was a shooting of the scope of Sandy Hook. Um, I literally was thinking in that chair, the questions I asked the Senate a few minutes later, I just 
I couldn't understand why anybody would come and fight so hard to get to the United States Senate if they um, just said it was too hard to do something after a massacre this big. Um, so I went directly from the dais down to my seat um, and I just said out loud what I was thinking. I didn't prepare my speech. I didn't write it down. Um, and in the end, I, you know, I ended up putting my hands together and literally begging my Republican colleagues to do their job and to come to the table and talk. And my hope is that, um, you know, something about that speech um, pinged something inside at least a few of my colleagues in the Senate Republican caucus to cause them to sit down over the next uh, couple of days. You say, why do people come there? And I, I had this discussion with President Obama during the Affordable Care Act because there were senators who uh, who were very sympathetic to the goals, uh, Republican and de- but mostly even Democratic senators, but were very frightened about the political implications uh, of voting for it. And the reality is, I think most people who come there want to do good things. I, I don't. I don't doubt that. But if it's a choice between doing good things and being there, I think a goodly number of people are going to, you know, maybe reluctantly, but they're going to choose the being there part. And isn't that part of the problem that we have? I mean, I think it's not new. It's. It's. I always say profiles and courage was a slim volume for a reason. <laughs> but how do we overcome that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I have a sense of this. I mean, I, um, I think all the time, right, that there's this moment when I'm hanging up my spikes and I better be super proud of what I did. And what you're proud of is not the number of times you're reelected. Um, what you're proud of is, you know, whether you change people's lives. Um, but here is an instance in which those two things, doing something good and getting reelected are not mutually exclusive. It's just that all these Republicans thought they were this, this mythology that's built up in the, the national political dialogue after 1994, right? The mythology is that people voted for the assault weapons ban and lost their seat because of it in 1994. I don't actually think that's true. Um, in fact, I don't think there's any political downside to voting for the kind of things that were in this bill. And so we had to prove to Republicans that you could make this country safer, that you could cross the NRA and you could get a political benefit out of it. And I'm sure that that will be the result. And improving that for the 15 Republicans in the Senate that voted yes on this bill, um, I think that we will be able to pass more compromise like it in the future, because I just think it was wrong that folks put this belief that you would actually compromise your chances of reelection if you voted for something that 90 percent of your constituents support. Were you uh, worried when John Cornyn went to the NRA convention in the midst of this and got unmercifully booed, or did that embolden people? If I were you, I'd be sitting there thinking, uh-oh, I hope this doesn't throw a wrench in the works. Well, I mean, we knew he was going to the convention. We we, we knew um, the response that he was going to get, but so did he. Um, and, and throughout that weekend, he never gets disengaged from the negotiations. And the minute that he walked out of that convention, he was back in conversations about how to close the deal. Um, and so um, I uh, listen, I think that, you know, John probably understood that that convention was not representative of even the Republican Party in Texas. That ended up being a pretty Nora, 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 one hopes is, was the Republican convention down there. The, uh, well, well, that's what I'm saying. That Republican convention in Texas was was not a representation yeah, yeah. even of the Republican of the Republican Party in the state. So, uh, but pretty immediately after John stepped down from the stage, it was clear that his um, spine um, was just as stiff as it was 
uh, going in, um, and that was that was great news. This this may be a cynical view, but I mean, I, I and I don't even offer it that way. I kind of view Mitch McConnell as a guy who thinks about politics a hundred percent of the time and thinks his job is to think about politics a hundred percent of the time and to try and expand and protect his his uh, his caucus. Um, and one of my theories was that uh, he knew that the road decision was coming down. He knew that the gun decision was coming up because the same week you passed this bill, the Supreme Court expanded gun rights to the point where it's, you know, it's people can, you, New York state can't tell people that they need a reason to carry a gun on the streets. Uh, So, um, and my theory was that between Uvalde and the, these things that he recognized that, they better be able to do something moderate here, something reasonable, or there could be a firestorm and the party could be so positioned out of the mainstream that it could cost them. Well, in 2018, um, all across this country, we had candidates running proudly in favor of universal background checks and banning assault weapons. And not in blue states, right? In Georgia, in Texas, in Arizona, and they won everywhere. Um, so I think it has become clear to McConnell that um, you have to speak to a constituency, especially a suburban constituency, that increasingly um, comes out and votes on the issues of guns. And he said as such, I think a day or two before the final vote, McConnell came out and said, uh, you know, listen, we need to do better in suburbs and we need to be able to speak to voters on this issue of guns. Um, And my hope is that after passing this bill, we'll be in a better electoral position. Great. That's exactly what the movement has been building towards, right? Ten years ago, no Republican would have said that. No Republican would have seen any real political upside to voting on a bill like this. But they do now because we have built this political and popular demand for bills like this. Um, But I will say something a little bit contrary. Um, I think that's probably 80 percent of Mitch McConnell's motivation. But I've also watched him very carefully, the comments he makes after these mass shootings. He has always very carefully left the door open to negotiations. He never supported them as clearly as he did this time around. But maybe I will get in a lot of trouble with my progressive friends for saying this. I think there was a part of Mitch McConnell um, that wanted to be part of a paradigm shift on this issue before Mm -hmm. he left office. I think most of it was a sheer political calculation. Yeah, But I think there's a part of him that really did um, want to have as part of his legacy an ability for Congress to work together on reducing gun violence. Speaking of uh, McConnell, what do you think about this court? Uh, we had these decisions now today, another one on the EPA uh, that will have regulatory implications across all kinds of policies, not just environmental policy. Where are we going here? And what is the cost to a democracy of a court that is so out of step with the mainstream of the country. And listen, it's, it's extraordinary what is happening. These are, these are politicians that are masquerading as judges. There is no way to read any um, legal consistency between these opinions. They are using the Constitution as a, a tool, a kind of fun tool uh, to impose their political views on the rest of the nation. And the legitimacy of the entire institution is being compromised at a moment when so many Americans are already kind of questioning whether democracy is still the most useful way to run the country. Um, This is further eroding people's trust um, inside our form of government. Um, And so we've got to do something about this. Um, Well, what is the something? Well, I think, I think we're going to have to, we're going to have to make the Congress a majoritarian body 
Because if the Supreme Court is now going to be in the business of policymaking and they operate by majoritarian rules, then the Congress needs to as well. So um, the Supreme Court doesn't need to get a 60 vote majority in order to impose their political views on the nation. And so we're going to have to really make this issue of changing the rules of the Senate. Um, I think a defining uh, part of the 2022 uh, election campaign. And I think in the past, uh, most Americans were pretty tuned out to debates about Senate procedure. Um, I think that they're going to be much more willing to sort of take a look at candidates' views on this issue and willing, and whether you're willing to stand up to this sort of sharp rightward turn at the Supreme Court this fall. President said uh, that he, he wants there to be a carve-out in, from the filibuster. He wasn't asking to overturn the filibuster. As you know, he's been resistant to that. But a carve-out from the filibuster to create, uh, to enshrine in law a protection for privacy rights, including uh, uh, abortion. That That's not likely to happen in this Senate, is it? it no, it isn't. Um, I, I think just today you've had, you know, one of my colleagues, Kirsten Sinema, once again reiterate that she's not willing to change the rules. So this is only going to occur if um, we both protect the majority in the House and um, increase our majority in the uh, in the United States Senate. Um, but listen, that is uh, something that sounded improbable uh, just a few weeks ago, but is very possible given the fact that there are going to be a lot of women and a lot of uh, family members in this country who maybe weren't planning on turning out to vote in the midterm, who are all of a sudden going to have a lot more interest knowing that um, the right to reproductive health care, the right to determine for you know themselves as women when to have children is all of a sudden on the ballot. You know, you talk to people who are out there doing research right now, focus groups and so on. Since that decision, it, it may well be that the proponents of that decision were the dogs that caught the car, because there is a sense that this is tied to a general sort of extremism that is frightening people. I mean, six months ago, you heard groups of independent voters complaining about, uh, you know, democratic extremists, you know, critical race theory and masks and all this. And those same groups now are talking about this and and their concerns about this. I mean, you you know all the you're a shrewd politician, inflation, punishing people, gas prices, uh, you know, the whole array of things that are lined up against Democrats in this election. You think this you think that this issue uh, and related issues about privacy rights and so on, contraception, gay rights, and so, this could you think this could turn the tide? Listen, it, it would obviously be, be precedent breaking for Democrats to retain or expand majorities um, in the first midterm election of a new president. But what the Supreme Court is doing is precedent breaking. And, and, and it's sort of stunning to me that they've chosen to do it in this way. I mean, knowing that they were going to hand down the Dobbs decision, you would have thought that they would have sort of held back some of these other radical decisions that they wouldn't have chosen to completely reinterpret the Second Amendment or the First Amendment or Congress's ability to delegate rulemaking um, on environmental issues to agencies. But they did it all at once. And the hubris of this court, right, this, this very clear signal that they're sending that they're in charge now. Congress is in charge. The president is in charge. The Supreme Court is in charge. I'm telling you, people are hearing this. People are hearing this, not just from the Dobbs decision, but from this panoply of opinions. And it is frightening, folks. You know, midterm elections are generally about turnout. 
Um, it's, it's not necessarily about changing people's minds. It's about a lot of folks, a lot of young people in particular, who mm-hmm. are probably going to sit home um, prior to this series of decisions who are now all of a sudden going to mobilize and turn out. So, yeah, listen, I think the odds are still probably against us, but all of a sudden, I think this is a much um, closer election, an election that is likely going to look different than other midterms because of this exceptional series of decisions from the Supreme Court. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You know, you weren't just uh, ahead of the game on this gun issue, but you've been deeply, deeply involved in Ukraine issues for a very long time. Tell me, first of all, why that became such a focus of your interest uh, and assess where we are right now. Yeah, so I um, you know, I went to Ukraine first with John McCain in 2013, and I, and I don't know that there's another member of the Senate who's been there as many times since. You know, part of it is, you know, my personal history. Um, I have this very Irish last name, but most of my ancestors came from Poland and Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, I grew up hearing about stories of my relatives in Poland, um, you know, having all of their mail read before it was sent, um, you know, through the um, the, the, the Soviet censors back to the United States. And I know who Vladimir Putin is. Um, he absolutely wants to reassemble the Soviet Union. He absolutely wants to break the West in half. And he is coming after us. Um, he sees the vulnerability of American democracy. And just like wins on anti-gun violence measures beget wins, if Putin starts to rack up victories in destroying democracies on his periphery, he is going to be emboldened to come straight after us. Um, so listen, the domino theory is not always right. It's not always uh, the, the the right platform for policymaking. But in this instance, I think you've got to stop this march before it gets any worse um, in Ukraine. So I've been a, a proponent of you know more significant assistance to Ukraine for the better part of the last decade. And um, I don't think we can do too much right now, save for sending troops over there um, to make sure that Putin is stopped and to make sure that we're sending a clear signal to um, President Xi in China, that there are similar similar ramifications if he starts to think about moving troops into Taiwan or other neighboring countries. This is this is really important, not just for the global world order, but for the safety and security of American democracy in the long run. So, what is victory there? I mean, I think that's sort of the big question now. Yep. Because Russia pulled back from this from this broader assault and hunkered down in, in eastern Ukraine. And now they're holding a lot of territory. Um, how do you undo that? Uh, and, you know, the Ukrainians clearly believe, you know, every inch of ground they want back. Is that possible? Is that practical? How does this thing end? So our goal from the start has been that Ukraine's future is up to Ukraine, right? That is the essence of democracy, the essence of self-determination, that no one from the outside gets, gets to impose upon right. them their will. And so ultimately, this question is up to the Ukrainians. Listen, I think there will be a moment at which Ukraine has enough leverage over Russia. Um, Russia's economy and military infrastructure has been so crippled that there will be a negotiation. Um, and I can't tell you what the outcome of that will be. It, it probably it will not result in the sort of status quo anti-2013, um, but we should be in the business 
of helping Ukraine increase its leverage over Russia. So at the moment that Zelensky and his team want to sit down at the negotiating table, they can cut the best deal possible. But that decision should be up to Ukraine. And up until that moment, our position should be to support them to make that decision for themselves. So we don't need to say right now that the United States is in this until Russia is out of Crimea. But we should say that we are in this until the Ukrainian leadership decides it's the right time to end this conflict and sit down at the table. And do you think the American people will stay at the table here? I think that's an open question. Um, you know, I just was in Europe for three days talking you know, very openly with my European colleagues about the need for leaders um, to, to keep this issue on the front burner, because I, I do think that in an era where there's a lot going on in people's economic lives, that they are at some point going to um, you know, be susceptible to arguments that the money we're spending over there should be spent here. I think when Trump becomes the nominee, and you know, I'm assuming he will be, um, he will openly. Even after all of this, you assume he will be. I, I still assume he's the he's the nominee. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think his chances have have decreased, but he is still the front runner. Mm-hmm. He's going to oppose uh, any additional Ukraine aid once he's the nominee. It becomes harder for Republican members of Congress and the Senate to break from him. It becomes harder for us to put together bipartisan majority. So I'm not saying this doesn't become difficult, but it's incumbent upon people like me um, to continue to explain the efficacy of supporting Ukraine to the American public. Were you surprised? I know you've you've been in touch with Zelensky. You were actually around the whole impeachment issue. Your conversations with Zelensky, I think uh, Senator Johnson was with you, uh, was an issue uh, at that time. What do you make of Zelensky? And did you see in him this quality that has now become, uh, that has become so evident to the world? I've just been so impressed by him. I, I think I have been a little bit surprised at how good and how adept at international communication he has he has been um and you know my you know over the last decade america has not necessarily been the best advertisement for investment in democracy um to pro-democracy movements around the world i wish that were the case but we had a couple dark years there um zelensky has you know reignited a passion for democracy and a passion to fight for democracy around the world in a way that the United States has been, able, been been unable to muster over the past several years. And so I think the long-term consequence of the fight in Ukraine um, in countries where democracy is still up for grabs is maybe going to be one of the most important legacies of uh, this last four months. Zelensky has been a miracle for his own people, but for um, the fight for democracy all around the world. You're a professional, so you will evade this question, but I feel I have to end with it because I hear it from a lot of people. Assuming if the president were not to run, your name has been thrown out there. Is that something that you think about? Is that something that you would consider? Is that something... I guess I'm giving you a chance to say that is something I will never do. <laughs> you know, I, I listen. I, I, I think that you know there may be some point in my life where that would uh, make sense. Um, but you know, there's two things right now um, happening in my life. One, um, I have young children, and you know they are m- m- very much my number one priority. Um, but two, I I just came face to face with the potential of the United States Senate, right? I mean, I've I've put in a lot of work to become good at this job. Um, you're not good at it the day you show up. You actually have to practice it. You have to build relationships. You have to sort of have failure before you have success. Um, I think I'm in a position now to try to build on the success of the gun safety bill to um, you know pass other um, life 
saving changes in law with Republicans and Democrats. So um, maybe there's a, a time for that in my life uh, later on, but this is probably not that moment. And um, yes, I will predominantly avoid that question in stating for the record <laughs> that I think that I think that Joe Biden is running again for re-election, and I'm going to probably support him when he does. That will help you in your tasks of getting things done right now. So listen, Senator, congratulations on your success. And thank you so much. I know you just got back for making time for us. Um, I hope it's the first of many conversations. Well, I'm a big fan, David. Um, it, was, it was a thrill to be with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Thank you.